What I would like to talk about this evening is attentiveness, calmness, and insight. Developing attention is actually a very fine art. And as an art, its development requires something more than just the factors of practice and time. There is certainly an element of skillfulness in learning how to develop attention. But I think far more important in the development of attention are the qualities of sensitivity, our own willingness to learn, the patience that we're able to bring, the quality of dedication I think is paramount in developing attentiveness, and so is the quality of love. As I mentioned this morning, to really be awake, we have to love being awake. If we don't love being awake, then the temptations to sleep to be numb, to be distant, to be lost, are almost endless. So in very real ways, when we develop attention in meditation, we are making certain choices in our lives, in the way in which we wish to be in this world. We may be making choices to forsake or to renounce numbness and distance and disconnection and we are making choices to be more connected to develop a greater intimacy and closeness now there are very few spiritual disciplines if any which do not have some foundation upon developing this art of attentiveness and I think the reasons for this are many and obvious. When we are not attentive, we are not present. Physically we may be present, but we are not present in spirit. There can be a great lack of wholeheartedness. When we are not present, clearly and consciously present, then inwardly and outwardly there does tend to be a far greater superficiality in the way that we see ourselves, the way that we see the world, the way that we see other people. So developing attention is actually intended to bring about a greater sense of depth and immediacy in our relationships to this moment, to ourselves. Developing attention is intended to bring about essentially a sense of communion, a oneness, within our own being, a oneness of mind and body, and that same quality of oneness with the moment, each moment that we're in. Now part of nurturing that sense of oneness, that rapport and intimacy, is so that we feel and experience very directly a much greater openness, a willingness to receive a willingness to let go of many of the defenses, many of the barriers, which are part of 
superficiality, the barriers of judgment, of images, of interpretation. So this commitment to attentiveness is essentially a commitment to oneness and an openness to learning. Now when we present this whole field of attentiveness in a retreat, it seems such a simple thing. It seems really such a simple thing to be attentive. It's hard to figure out why we would not want to be attentive. It seems a very simple and very straightforward invitation. And yet we do experience that actually being attentive is one of the most challenging things that we do in our lives. On another level, it seems such a wonderful gift. I mean, when you've probably, all of us, when we've been in situations in our lives where we're working and overwhelmed with demands and pressures and needs, and if someone came to us and said, you know, I'm going to offer you some time to do nothing more than to care for your own well-being wholeheartedly. I'm going to offer you just the opportunity where you have to do nothing but just give attention to your own well-being, your own ease, your own connectedness, and your own connection with the moment. We would think it is a wonderful gift. We couldn't imagine a more wonderful invitation. It's not somehow we're reluctant at times about taking up this invitation. Certainly before retreats begin, most people find themselves, although there may be some apprehension, really looking forward to going on retreat. You know, maybe we have terrific memories of the last time we're on retreat, you know, especially the last day or so, you know, when things are really, you know, so calm and peaceful and delightful, you know, and we often just can't wait to get there. You know, we, we have dreams about zafus, you know, and sitting on cushions. Until we actually arrive, and suddenly our mind says, you know, what am I doing? I can't wait to get off this cushion. You know, I can't wait for something else to happen. I mean, it is such a kind of almost comical thing, except when you're experiencing it, of course. When you're sitting on a cushion, kind of waiting for the sitting to end. I mean, this is such a curious thing. Waiting for a sitting to end. I mean, what do we really think is going to end when a bell goes? We have more thoughts and more feelings and more sensations and more images. And yet often how much investment we have in a sitting ending or a walking ending. As if there's some, going to be something wonderfully exciting happening at the end of that sitting. No. Of course the reason why we can't wait to jump off our cushions <laughs> is because of the discomfort that we experience when we sit on our cushions. Now there is some there indeed for most people. And a lot of the discomfort of course has to do with this uh, production line, this inner production line of stories and preoccupations. If we showed movies in here, most people will have a really easy time paying attention. It would be no problem. You know, if we had feature movies every night, night after night, most people would come in and it's just absorbed. It's not if you're interested in the subject. And yet here, to be attentive to ourselves, which is a curious paradox, to be attentive just to where we are and who we are can seem so difficult. What we are do meeting, of course, 
is our own ambivalence about being present. Our own ambivalence about being alone and with ourselves. Because there's no doubt this is a mixed package. Although we may be very eager and intuitively sense the value and the significance and the richness of being present, there are certainly elements of fear there too. One reason it is difficult, it is because it seems that developing attentiveness doesn't really fall into the category of being very gratifying. It doesn't feel very gratifying. And we can never underestimate the need and the greed of I, of the self, to be stimulated and pleased and flattered and busy. Now, the breath doesn't really seem to offer us a lot of this. It's actually hard to get that excited about breathing. Unlike other things in our lives, it's hard to get excited no matter how busy we get with our breaths, you know, trying, of course, you know, sitting with long breaths or sitting with short breaths or, you know, sitting with long and short breaths or sitting with watching the pauses in between breaths. There's a limit to how long we can actually be entertained by our breathing. <laughs> it's a very short limit often, you know, from the first day or two. And we see that actually in taking away gratification, we take away one of the major supports of the self. We take away one of the major props of the self. And we are left with certain, with ourselves, with certainly a very profound aloneness and often a feeling of deprivation. Something is missing. Unfortunately, it happens in our lives that we do get reduced to such a state of inner poverty that in the absence of gratification, we feel deprived. Now, this is why, of course, we go through all these dances with the hindrances, the ways that we try to distance ourselves from ourselves. Now, this becomes a major preoccupation in retreats, how to distance ourselves from ourselves. The hindrances is one way. A lot of doing is another way. Control is, is another way. Because, of course, aloneness, being alone, reveals the illusory nature of control, which is threatened, deeply threatened. Our breathing doesn't need our control, no matter how much we fool around with it. It's clear. It doesn't actually require us to do that. We will still breathe, if we're not, even if we're not trying to breathe. We can see psychologically control is threatened. You know, we tell ourselves, I should be so happy to be here. I'm so fortunate and lucky. Think of all those people in the world who can't be on retreat. And yet we dream of leaving. We invite our minds to be very still. You know, yes, please pay attention. You know, it's going to be nice and nice, calm sitting here. And the mind is chattering away. We suggest, you know, that it would be really liberating to let go of grasping. And right away we find ourselves looking for the next thing to grasp hold of. It's many, many ways we try to distance ourselves from aloneness and from attentiveness. Now sometimes that happens because for some people 
they have actually not received a great deal of loving attention in their life. This is a basic actuality. For some people, they have not actually been the recipient of a great deal of loving attention in their lives and find it very difficult to actually feel worthy of loving attention, to actually feel worthy of receiving that kind of attentiveness from themselves. Another thing, the factor that makes it difficult to be simply attentive is the, is the factor of habit. Our minds have such a long training in being habitual, have found such a lot of comfort and security in being habitual through preoccupations and dwelling and order that it is extraordinarily difficult to let go of the habits of the mind, it seems. Now, all of these factors is why attentiveness requires not just practice, but why the art of attentiveness actually requires such depths of patience and dedication, such depths of compassion and generosity to be able to let go, to be able to begin again, to be able to be gently present. Now, as we persevere in developing attentiveness, I think it is very important to remind ourselves that we don't persevere in this in order to get rid of the struggle. We don't persevere with attentiveness in order to overcome or to transcend or to get rid of the kind of struggling mind so that we'll arrive at some kind of lofty, peaceful, calm destination where we're not disturbed by scatteredness or not disturbed by control or feelings of unworthiness. They are not the reasons why we develop attentiveness. We enter, well, to do that, you know, to enter into developing attentiveness because of aversion because of aversion for ourselves or aversion for our mind or for aversion for the world to, to enter into meditation motivated by aversion leads uh, almost always to a lot of striving a lot of contempt inwardly, directed inwardly and outwardly a lot of dismissiveness and basically leads us to become very uptight, rigid, and righteous type yogis. This is not the point. If we are willing to persevere with attentiveness, to meet these challenges that we meet, that we encounter, with a spirit of compassion, a spirit of generosity, then something truly begins to change. Not only do the struggles and the scatteredness and the lack of clarity begin to dissolve, but more importantly, at the same time, simultaneously, we do deepen in our own capacities for compassion and generosity. We deepen in our own capacities and understanding of what dedication actually means what it means to be steadfast, 
what it means to be sensitive, what it means to be allowing and generous. The deepening in these qualities is of far more significance than being a perfect breather. This practice is really not directed towards a quantitative expansion in our attention on the breath. It's not concerned with how many breaths in a row we watch, with how, with how concentrated necessarily even our minds are. What this practice is far more concerned with is the qualitative transformation in our consciousness. And this is very important to remind ourselves of when we find ourselves being judgmental about the nature of our progress or our lack of progress when we find ourselves being judgmental about how we sit or don't sit or practice well or don't practice well, to really remind ourselves that what we are here for is not to get a diploma in breathing, that we are really here to explore the possibilities of transforming the consciousness, of deepening in our own capacities for generosity, compassion, sensitivity, allowing, because these are all the organic expressions of a very authentic attentiveness. Now, when we begin this practice, (coughs) we begin with an object of attention. In this case, in this retreat, we have used the breath as the anchor object of attention. And yet also encouraging you, to bring a very equal attentiveness to anything else that the attention is drawn to, to sounds, to sights, to feelings, to body. But objects are the center of the practice in the beginning. The entire meditation is focused around the seeing of objects, see one object at a time. This is not easy in the beginning because there are so many objects. There seems to be so many things in the moment. The moment seems so crowded with objects. And so often in the beginning, because of this, the present moment seems so crowded, we often don't always feel a lot of clarity around the objects we are attending to. Sometimes we're aware we're thinking, but we're not always aware what we're thinking. We're aware, perhaps, of mental states arising and passing, but often they may feel a little vague. The objects, the whole purpose of using the objects in meditation is, not, is to deepen our connection to this moment. That is the whole purpose of using objects, to bring us closer to what is actual, to bring a greater oneness, a greater integration with what is actual. Not because one object is more important than another object, but because the direct communion, the immediacy of connection is significant. Now, as we continue to develop attentiveness, there are certain changes that begin to take place. One of them that is noticeable is a slowing down of inner activity. 
Now, when the inner activity begins to slow down, basically the present moment feels less crowded. It feels less busy. And in that, we often feel ourselves to be nearer the objects we are attending to. There's a greater sense of immediacy, less of a sense of an uninterrupted busyness, but rather there's a feeling of a thought is a thought, a sensation is a sensation, a sound is a sound, a breath is a breath. There's a sense of moving the attention with the arising and passing of the objects. The objects, of course, become clearer because the mind is becoming clearer. Our capacity to perceive and to connect is actually becoming clearer. The objects are also becoming calmer. They feel, you know, the breath feels calmer. There's a sense of things arising and passing in a certain stillness, a certain spaciousness. The objects become calmer because the mind is becoming calmer and so does the body. This is a kind of organic development in attentiveness. There arises certain changes in consciousness of calmness, of ease, of spaciousness, of balance. Now, in saying that, I would remind you that there is no standard map and that there are many reasons why our practice unfolds very differently than somebody else's practice. But these are kind of somewhat predictable changes that will take place. Now, when calmness and spaciousness begins to develop in meditation, of course, we, we're very happy. Basically, we're very happy. You know, finally, finally, we feel there's some breakthrough. And often we become even a little bit possessive about this calmness and spaciousness, even perhaps a little bit, you know, it's like she's a little bit delicate, like we have to guard it a little, you know, we have to be very careful because if we do anything too impulsive or we're not very watchful, we might lose it very quickly, you know. So people often kind of carry their attention around with them, sort of like a little newborn baby, you know. Very, very gentle and very, very cautious with it. And it's understandable that we treasure that attentiveness but, and that calmness and spaciousness. But I would suggest that the beginning, the advent of calmness and spaciousness does not really signal that it is time for us to retire. Now the quiet mind is undoubtedly the happy mind. And if you've been used to a very busy mind, and a very chaotic mind, then the quiet mind seems a very, very attractive proposition. But I would really remind you, the quiet mind is certainly not the point of meditation, and it is not the end of the path. Also, I think it is really helpful to remember not to have any assumptions at all that the object of meditation is to become better and better at perceiving objects. This is not the point of meditation. To become more and more precise in our capacity to perceive objects. Nor do I think we should assume that there is a direct link between samadhi 
our calmness and attentiveness and insight. Not assume that there is a direct link between a quiet mind and deepening an understanding. Now, understandably, you know, we long for a mind which is more quiet and more calm, but I would really encourage you not to be satisfied with calmness. Not to be satisfied with calmness, nor to assume that there's any link whatsoever necessarily between samadhi and insight. The point of calmness is not to get better and better perceiving objects. Rather, calmness is a change in consciousness which lends itself, which inclines itself, which is attractive or, or receptive to deepening in insight. But the insight is not an automatic product of the calmness. It is simply that insight comes more easily to the consciousness which is calm and spacious. Now that is not to suggest in any way that the chaotic mind doesn't have any insight. You know, that if we're busy in our minds, if we're in chaos, if we're in confusion, that there's not going to be any insight. Lots of people have chaotic minds and crazy minds and have insight. But the difference is that because when the mind is in a state of chaos and confusion, its connection with the present moment tends to be more superficial. And so when there is insight, it tends to make more of a superficial impression. Well, I think this is probably fairly obvious in our experience. An insight which makes us only a superficial impression doesn't necessarily need to let it doesn't necessarily lead to letting go, nor to a real transformation in consciousness. This is an important difference to recognize. Calmness lends itself to insight, and because the mind is more still, insight makes a much more profound impression. Now, in meditation, we actually talk a whole lot about deepening in insight and deepening in wisdom. And sometimes I think that insight and wisdom gets this kind of, you know, very esoteric association, and like it's, you know, people hang around waiting for big revelations, you know, and big flashes, you know, and how do I know I've had an insight, you know, but it must be something very special, you know, because it seems to be such a kind of charged and important word, you know, and, and for many people, you know, they're often too embarrassed to say, you know, but they they often kind of sit with a certain anxiety about, you know, have I had any insights? You know, haven't I had any real insights? I've been here for days, you know, <laughs> and I'm not sure if I've had an insight that really is important or the kind I'm supposed to have or something. But there's nothing actually very mysterious about insight, I would like to say. Now, we do talk about it a great deal. But if we are honest with ourselves, actually insight is not something that's very difficult for us to access. Now if all of us, you know, in the very big first hour of this retreat, if we send everybody off to their room with a pen and paper and said, you know, please write a short essay on what you cling to, what causes suffering in your life, what causes conflict and limitation, you know, and describe, you know, in a thousand words or less, 
the way, you know, your self-images and your self-definitions and the burdens you carry around who you are. I mean, it wouldn't be difficult. It wouldn't be difficult. You know, most of us do it about ten minutes. You know, we'd have this wonderful essay drawn up. We know these things. We actually know what causes sorrow and conflict in our lives and what brings joy. We know the ways in which we hold and resist. We know the ways in which we arm and defend ourselves. We know the ways in which our past superimposes itself upon our present. We know these stories very well. And this knowing and this intellectual understanding of these stories is helpful. It is helpful to know this conceptually. But it also can be very frustrating because we see that although we know something, we can't seem to step out of it. You know, and many people go through their lives kind of kicking themselves about, you know, why did I do that? I know better. You know, why, why did I do that again? Why haven't I learned? Why haven't I learned that I don't need to do that anymore? Why haven't I learned that, that, that dwelling and grasping causes suffering? Of course we know it, but we see that actually for insight to be transforming, it needs to be more than intellectual. There needs to be a real depth in that seeing, a power in that seeing that allows us to let go, that truly allows us to see the falseness of constructions, of definitions, of identities. What we really need is a quality or a depth of insight that allows us to see the false as false and the true as true. When we know this very deeply, we don't have to ask, how do I let go? Letting go happens as an expression, a visible expression of the insight. The calmness we develop in meditation helps us, essentially helps us, to be receptive to what we already know understand deeply, to embrace deeply, to integrate deeply that which we already know. And this is where the calmness can and is often helpful. Now true samadhi is not just calmness, but it is calmness and clear comprehension. Now clear comprehension requires more than just the ability to pay attention to an object. Clear comprehension is about having a direct and clear connection with what we are attending to. Now, a direct and clear connection with what we are attending to means being able to attend to this moment without dwelling or holding or resistance free of projections or images or aversions. That is the capacity to see a thought as a thought, a feeling as a feeling, as a sensation as a sensation. But not only the objects, to see also our, the nature of the objects. This is also part of clear comprehension, to see their beginnings, their endings, the changes they go through. It is also, clear comprehension is also to be aware 
of our relationship to that which we are attending to. Whether there is resistance, whether there is grasping, whether there is aversion, whether there is dwelling, to be clear and conscious in our relationship, not only to the objects, but to the impressions that the objects, this is thoughts, sounds, feelings, sights, smells, body, the impressions that are made through the objects upon consciousness. As the attention does develop, there's a greater sense of being in harmony with the objects. That is because the very development of attentiveness, if it is developed with sensitivity, compassion and generosity, allows us to attend to this moment free of preferences and prejudice and judgment. Then there is a wholeheartedness in our attentiveness, a clarity in our attentiveness. And we find that many of the objects that we bring our attention to simply dissolve. We pay attention to a thought and it dissolves. We pay attention to a sensation and it breaks up. We pay attention to a mind construction and it begins to fall apart. Now that dissolving happens because of the cessation of holding, of not being for or against. Of not being for or against. And if we are not for or against, then very little impression is made on the consciousness by the objects. It's a sense of a, a more undisturbed calmness and stillness. Now again, this is not something to rest upon. This is a not another retirement point. Now the practice organically goes through many changes, but there are also times, and I know this from my experience so often in practice, there are many, many times when you need to give your practice just a little nudge. Just a little nudge. Just remembering that so much of the practice is inspired by what we bring to it. And those little nudges can be enormously helpful. Now, liberating insight, really freeing insight, which this meditation is concerned with, is not just going to be born of giving attention to objects, but equally of attending to the subjects. Now, in actuality, giving attention to the objects in meditation is actually a way of being more mindful and more clear about subject. This is why we use objects so that we can be clear about the subject. We don't use objects because they're so interesting. Rather the objects that we use in meditation reflect back to us the movement of the self, the movement of the subject. Now, in meditation we have the meditator, star role. In everybody's meditation is the meditator. It's very important to be aware of that. Now, who is the meditator? Who is, who is actually developing mindfulness? Who is actually refining attention? Who is doing all of these things? Now, the essence of the spiritual life of insight is to bring about an end of separation, an end of ignorance, an end of duality. Now, what 
the primary expression of ignorance is the belief in separation to be reality. This is what ignorance is, a consummation of ignorance. The belief in duality as being reality. So this belief is actually what we would be like to be interested in dissolving, our reason for being here. Now, the sense of self, the belief in it, creates a world of objects and it creates a world of separation. Now, some people see that and they make a mission in meditation to annihilate the self. Forgetting to ask who is annihilating who. This is actually not a very productive mission. The liberating insight is actually not to annihilate the self. It is to see the emptiness, the insubstantiality, the transparency of self and separation. To see the true is true and the false is false. Now part of that seeing must involve seeing through the meditator. Now we cannot overlook the fact that the meditator is the person who is most happy in meditation. The meditator actually gains a certain amount of security and control and identity through its meditation. Now you've seen the way in which the meditator gets really delighted about attention. Sometimes the meditator gets really delighted in being able to dissolve one, ad one object after another. The meditator gets really happy in finding signposts of calmness and precision. The meditator speaks of progress and development. The meditator is really delighted when it can sort of aim this laser beam of attention and dissolve one thing after another, kind of like, you know, ducks in a shooting gallery. And the meditator is absolutely, you know, in seventh heaven. It's wonderful. You know, I finally made it. And it's missed the point entirely. Now, the meditator that gets so gleeful in meditation, gathering together its trophies, of progress is, of course, exactly the same self that elsewhere in our lives is accumulating and grasping and taking hold of impressions and identities. Exactly the same self, just in a more enlightened form. It does judging and division and creating separation, who creates centers of a center in the world and creates a world of objects which is separate and apart from itself. Now, the meditator is very reluctant to let go of its role and to let go of its trophies. But I think we really need to acknowledge that there is really no real freedom in a world of objects and separation, no matter how much we are on top of it. There is no real freedom without a very profound understanding of emptiness. Now, how do we come to this insight? I mean, do we just stop doing? But then this is another kind of doing. You know, to say, well, I'm going to stop being a meditator, you know, I'm going to, you know, be formless, you know, I'm going to renounce meditation because I'm renouncing the self. Well, this is all still born of more doing and more identity. It is not a question of 
trying to do or trying not to do. We need to be able to acknowledge the way in which attentiveness reveals us to ourselves more fully, reveals to us our possibilities, allows us to draw upon and to nurture our own capacities for compassion and generosity and sensitivity. Attention does all this. It brings us into a relationship with our own being where we are really in developing those qualities, also letting go of confusion, letting go of holding, letting go of resistance. But then too, we really need to bring a real sense of inquiry into this practice, not just getting putting in more time or getting more attentive or seeing more objects, but much more to see this whole dance in its totality to see it in its real totality, to see the way the object arises with the subject and the subject with the object, the way the subject takes on the flavor of the object and the object takes on the flavor of the subject, to see the partners in that dance arising and passing and how as one object passes away, so too does that subject. Another object arises and the eye arises in yet a different form. The thinker is replaced by the, the, the wanter. The wanter is replaced by the hater. The, the hater is replaced by the lover. To see this constant kind of dance unfolding within awareness. Just unfolding within awareness. There is the scene of this dance. You don't need to be bound either to the subject or to the object. Just to see the whole, to see this whole dance unfolding on a moment to moment level and the link between the partners in those dances is always the link of grasping, the link of identification. As long as that link is there, then these partners of the subject and the object are bound together. And the strength of that link of grasping is also the strength of our own sense of becoming, our own sense of our identity. And the strength of that link of grasping is also the degree to which we feel exiled from awareness and bound to separation. It can all be seen, this dance can just be seen. We don't need to do anything about it at all, just to see it. It becomes more and more transparent, more and more insubstantial. Everything that we do in meditation is to loosen the grip of holding and to loosen the grip of identification. The Buddha once said, the foolish seek to pursue contact whereas the wise seek to understand it. Contact the arising, the subject and the object together. The wise seek to understand it, just to see it. That seeing is really the heart of this practice. And the subject is not grasped hold of and the world of objects dissolves. And when the object is not grasped hold of, then the world of the subject equally dissolves. The seeing is simply the heart of this practice, it's the beginning and the end. It is all that is asked of us. 
just to see, just to be aware, to question, to inquire, to see deeply and to see clearly. It's all that is asked of us and all that we need to do in this practice. May all beings live with clarity. May all beings see with wisdom. May all beings deepen in understanding. We have just a couple of moments quietly together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.